Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a four, and I'm going to be honest, I almost didn't touch this case or story at all. Not because of the sheer nature of the crime, but because honestly, I couldn't pick a side, and I put pick a side in quotation marks, air quotes, even though you can't see me doing that. Um, Because what I mean by that is, you know, I am normally completely on the victim's sides and I focus on their lives, on their justice, not on the people who commit the crimes, not on the accused. But this story, well, it's a bit different because the person accused of the crime could be innocent, as in it is quite possible that he was very wrongfully accused and convicted. It really boils down to a he said, she said situation, but it's what each one is saying that makes the story so important. The victim in this case accused a man of sexually assaulting and raping her after she met him at a bar, but the accused He adamantly denied it and continues to deny it to this day. And he has provided a story and evidence backing up that story that points to his innocence. But going back to my journalism roots, I'm going to let y'all decide for yourselves by just presenting the facts and opinions of both sides as accurately, fairly, and objectively as I possibly can. But I mean... We all know me by now, (laughs) so there might be a couple of times that I have to put my two cents in, but like I said, I'm going to try to be as fair and unbiased as I possibly can. This episode is titled, He Said, She Said. So without further ado, let's get started. As I said, this story was very hard for me to cover, so bear with me as I lay out the details for both the victim and the accused. Of course, I'll start with the victim, or some might say the alleged victim, because regardless of whether the incident in question happened the way she remembers it or not, it is clear that she was traumatized and feels very violated as a result. And I in no way want to take away from her very real feelings or disregard them as false or made up. Also, we don't know her name just yet. And I want to be as respectful as possible. So I will just refer to her as I'm speaking as the victim or the accuser or even Jane Doe, because that's actually the name the court records uh, use to protect her identity. So with that being said, let's start at the beginning. Actually, Vibe.com compared this whole case to an episode of Law & Order SVU, 
one of my favorite shows. And honestly, I couldn't agree more because that is exactly what it seems like. On the night of September 10th, 2016, and into the early morning of September 11th, 2016, the victim, a 17-year-old female high school student at the time, was visiting her cousin at the University of Kansas. The Lawrence Journal World reported that the two of them had been drinking at a fraternity house for a couple of hours before they headed to the Jayhawk Cafe, a popular college bar in Lawrence, more commonly known as The Hawk. The two young women, the victim and her cousin, arrived to the bar that night with a group of friends, and not one of them were asked for an ID, so they all got in without being carded. The victim later said she assumed maybe someone in their group knew the bouncer or maybe an employee at the bar, so that's why they were able to get in without being carded. By the time they got to the bar, though, the victim said she was already intoxicated. So, once inside, when someone handed her a drink, she said she took a couple of sips and then gave it away because she realized she was already filling the alcohol a little too much. The victim also said that, at this point, she was so intoxicated that she couldn't stand up. She was stumbling and didn't have control of herself. Actually, another man in the bar told police that at one point inside, he had to help hold her up to keep her from falling down. The victim's cousin also told police that the victim was drunk to the point that she was talking slowly and slurring her speech. Regardless, the victim and her cousin continued to stay at the bar. At some point during the night, the victim said the suspect in this case, a 20-year-old University of Kansas student by the name of Albert N. Wilson, noticed her, made his way over to her, and then the two started talking. As they were talking, the victim got separated from her cousin and she and Wilson moved to another area in the bar. Actually, they were waiting in line to get into a completely different area of the bar called the Boom Boom Room which is a crowded dance floor in the basement of the establishment. Upon her initial report to police, the victim alleged that it was on the dance floor where Wilson kissed her and then sexually assaulted her under her skirt with his hands. She said she never asked for that, and it caught her off guard. The Lawrence Journal World reported that the victim said, quote, I never said yes or that I wanted that. I was really drunk. I just kind of was there, end quote. After this alleged assault on the dance floor, the victim said Wilson then asked her if she wanted to go to his place and spend the night. But she said no, that she needed to find her cousin. But she reported that Wilson was persistent and convinced her to go outside with him and call her cousin outside of the bar. So Wilson and the victim walked outside hand in hand. But instead of stopping to call her cousin, she said Wilson led her to his house a couple of blocks away all while she was stumbling and could barely walk straight. She actually later testified that she had no idea where he was taking her, and the whole time she was just looking down, concentrating on her feet to make sure she was walking correctly. When they got there, she said, he led her up the stairs, but while they were going up, she dropped her phone because she was trying to text her cousin. That is the moment, she said, she realized what Wilson's intentions truly were. She said, quote, I think I realized that the intentions weren't to get me help. I just started saying, no, I'm too drunk. I can't do this. I'm too drunk. I can't do this, end quote. But Wilson continued leading her up the stairs into his room and onto his bed. Once upstairs in Wilson's room, the victim alleged that she sat on his bed and felt too dizzy to get up. So she just froze. She said she couldn't fight anymore because she had already told him no multiple times, but he wouldn't listen to her. She said, quote, 
I'd say no multiple times. I'd made it clear. I didn't think I could do anything, end quote. So she said she just laid on the bed, disengaged from what was happening. He proceeded to kiss her on the neck and chest, and then he raped her while she looked away, either staring at the ceiling or to the side of the room until it was over. A few minutes later, the victim said, when it was over, she got up and began collecting herself to leave. She went back downstairs and walked as fast as she could to, quote, get somewhere with people, end quote. Wilson followed her out the door too, but he realized she was going the wrong way, in the opposite direction of the bar, so he pointed her back in the right direction, and the two walked back to the bar together, but this time not holding hands. The victim later said that as they were walking back, Wilson looked at her and told her she looked like she was about to cry. She said, quote, I felt like he was taunting me, end quote. Once back at the bar, the victim said, Wilson disappeared and she felt very panicked about everything that had just happened. Soon, though, she was reunited with her cousin who testified that, to her, the victim did look like she was on the verge of crying. The cousin said, quote, I've never seen her look like that before. She said, I'm not okay, end quote. After that, the two young women left and the victim's cousin took her to talk to one of her sorority sisters who was specially trained to deal with victims of sexual assault. That woman, the sorority sister, told police that when she met with the victim at approximately 1.30 a.m., she seemed disheveled and tired and she did appear to have been crying. The sorority sister also said she believed the victim had been drinking. But by the time she saw her and briefly spoke with her, the victim did not appear intoxicated. This is an important nugget of information to keep in the back of your mind. I think. Completely me talking here, but just FYI. Anyway, moving on with the story. By the time the victim began talking with her cousin's sorority sister, she decided she didn't really want to talk about it anymore. She decided she was too tired and even slightly embarrassed, according to the Lawrence Journal World, so she just wanted to go back to her cousin's dorm room and go to sleep, which is exactly what they did. The next day, the victim went back home, which was near Kansas City, and her mother testified that they were getting ready to go to a family event when she found her daughter in the backyard, shaking and lying in the fetal position. Her mother said she had never seen her daughter act that way, and when she tried to console her and see what was going on, the victim didn't want to talk about what had happened to her at first. But eventually, she opened up to her mom and told her she had been raped the night before. Naturally, her mother was very concerned and took her daughter straight to the hospital for a sexual assault exam. At the hospital, they took a vaginal swab and even documented some alarming photos. The nurse performing the exam documented that the victim had bruising on her thighs, which appeared to be from the alleged assault. Now, the rest of the story gets a little murky because even though all of this happened on the night of September 10th and into the next, you know, morning or the next day on September 11th of 2016, the victim didn't file a police report until about a month later on October 5th, 2016. When she did file the report, it took police a minute to even find Wilson, let alone arrest him, because the victim wasn't sure about his name. She told police that she thought his name was Albert, but she wasn't sure. She could, however, provide a detailed description of the suspect. She said he was a black male who stood about 5 feet 8 inches tall. He had short brown hair and an athletic build, and he was wearing a multicolored sweater. Now is probably a good time to point out that while the alleged suspect is black, the victim is white. 
So police got to work on locating the alleged suspect. After viewing surveillance cameras from the bar, police discovered a guy in a bright colored sweater consistent with the one the victim described. And that guy entered the Hawk that night around 11 p.m. He used a friend's ID to get in because he was only 20. And then his friend turned around a minute later and used the same ID to get in as well. I'm guessing they probably stamped his hand or gave him a bracelet or something like that so he could walk back outside and then give the ID back to his friend so his friend could actually use his own ID. <laughs> anyway, police were able to track Albert Wilson down through the friend whose ID he used that night. On November 18th, 2016, so over two months since the alleged incident in September, police went to Wilson's home and took him to the station for an interview. When Wilson was shown surveillance footage from the bar on the night in question, Wilson confirmed to police that it was indeed him in the video. But, he said, he didn't remember the alleged victim and he told police numerous times that he couldn't remember anything that happened that night at all. Police didn't have much to hold him on just yet, though, so they were forced to let him go. However, not before taking a cheek swab from Wilson and collecting the sweater he was wearing on the night in question. Now again, I'm not completely sure what happened for the next year or so, but police didn't actually arrest Wilson for the alleged rape until October 11, 2017. On that day, police charged Wilson with a felony, one count of rape. The Lawrence Journal World reported that Wilson violated a particular section of the Kansas rape statute where the accuser knowingly engaged in sex with a victim who did not consent and was overcome by force or fear. Wilson was then appointed a state attorney, Forrest Lowry, and his bond was initially set at $150,000. However, they asked the judge to lower the bond since it was Wilson's first offense and he had no prior criminal history. Though the judge denied the request at first, his bond was lowered to $75,000 after his preliminary hearing, and he was released on bond in November of 2017. At his preliminary hearing, though, Judge Sally Picorni ordered Wilson to stand trial after he pleaded not guilty to the charges. Yes, I said charges. By this time, Wilson was facing two counts of rape. There was the original count for the alleged incident at his home, but now police were charging him with another count of rape for the alleged sexual assault on the dance floor. You know, the one in the bar when Wilson allegedly put his hands up the victim's skirt. At the prelim hearing, Judge Picorni told Wilson that the victim repeatedly said no to him and her level of intoxication should have or would have been apparent to Wilson. The judge also said that because Wilson is larger than the victim, she, quote, had no way to actively resist or get away from him, end quote. Wilson's trial finally got underway on January 8, 2019. By this time, the victim was now 20 and attending college out of state, not in Kansas, and Wilson was 23 years old. The trial lasted a whopping three days. That's it. There were two days of testimony from both the prosecution and the defense, and one day of closing arguments and jury deliberation. It's incredibly important to point out, though, that the jury members were all white. Every single one of them. All nine women, three men, and one female alternate. They were all white. At the trial, the victim took the stand and told her story with the same details I already shared with you. But the victim's mother also took the stand and testified that the incident had cast a shadow over her daughter's life. She began having regular panic attacks. She was often unable to eat or sleep, and she lost at least 20 pounds in the weeks and months following. 
Her mother said, quote, she would have nightmares and get in bed with me. She hasn't done that since she was a baby, end quote. The mother went on to say, quote, she would cry all of the time and couldn't go to school, which is really not like her, end quote. Then, when her daughter did go to school or would go to school, her mother said, quote, she would be in the bathroom half the time throwing up or hiding. Crowds freaked her out. She couldn't be in the gym during assemblies anymore, end quote. The prosecution also called to the stand a forensic psychologist, John Spiridigliazzi, who testified that he had evaluated the victim and noted that she was traumatized. He diagnosed her officially with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, after the incident. This is another important of information to keep at the back of your mind as we move through the rest of the story. So, moving on, on the second day of the trial, which was January 9th, 2019, the defense had their turn and Wilson took the stand. His account of the night in question was quite different from the victim's. Wilson said, yes, he and his friend did meet the young woman and her cousin in the bar that night. However, he said she didn't appear intoxicated to him at all, at least not to the extent she was saying. And he said the contact in the bar was mutual, but that they never actually had sexual intercourse. He said they did meet while in line to get into the boom boom room, the room with the dark crowded dance floor. Wilson testified that he had no idea she was only 17 because she just seemed like any other college student. He said he actually caught her staring at him, so he went up to her and the two began talking as they were waiting in line. Then he said she was the one who was touching him, like getting handsy and stuff. And then when they finally did get into the boom boom room, side note, I seriously hate saying the name of that room. It just kind of feels you. Anyway, so when they finally did get onto the dance floor, surveillance video actually showed the girl pulling Wilson by the hand into the boom boom room. Once there, Wilson testified, his back was against the wall and they both started touching each other. The victim originally testified that he actually took her hands and placed them inside his pants first, but he denied this on the stand. Instead, he said, she placed her own hand on him, which triggered him to touch the girl under her skirt. He said that the whole incident on the dance floor was consensual and she never rebuffed. In his testimony, Wilson claimed it was around this time that he told her he was going home and suggested that maybe she could go with him. And she said, okay, by his account. Surveillance footage from the Hawk shows the two leaving the bar, Wilson leading her by the hand through the crowd as they exited. Other surveillance video shows them both walking hand in hand around the corner and down the street toward Wilson's house, which was about two blocks away from the bar. In her testimony, the victim had said she stumbled on the sidewalk as they were walking because she was so drunk. Wilson, though, said yes, she did stumble, but it was not due to intoxication. He said she stumbled over a crack in the steep uphill sidewalk, and when she did, he asked her if she was okay. He testified that she responded by physically jumping on him, wrapping her arms and legs around him, and kissing him. Though consent was never verbalized, Wilson said he honestly believed from her actions that they were headed to his place to have sex, something he thought they both wanted. He testified that she never said no. Once at his house, Wilson testified, they were only in his bedroom for about five minutes. He said she went upstairs with him, laid on the bed, and they continued to do some heavy petting and making out, but he said he never removed any of her clothes and did not have sex with her. 
During this five minutes or so, Wilson said he got a where you at text from his friend who was still back at the bar and didn't even realize his friend left. And he also got a missed call from that same friend. So Wilson decided to go back and see what his friend wanted. When he told her he was leaving, he said she gave him a, quote, mad look, end quote. And then they both left and headed back to the bar. Naturally, the prosecutor attacked this and asked Wilson why he didn't simply ignore the text or tell his friend that he was busy with a girl and to leave him alone, though she didn't let him answer and continued questioning him. The prosecutor then asked Wilson if he thought the girl made up the accusation because she was mad that he wouldn't have sex with her. Wilson simply answered the question with, quote, I believe so, end quote. The prosecuting attorney also pointed out that Wilson's story now, during the trial, did not match up with what he originally told police. Remember when they first went to his house to question him about the alleged incident? Wilson told police he couldn't or didn't remember anything about the night in question. Wilson responded to the prosecutor's question by saying, quote, I told police I didn't remember because I didn't want to say anything to incriminate myself at that time, end quote. The prosecutor, who is a white woman, pressed Wilson and asked him why, though. Why would he lie to police at the time if he didn't do anything wrong? His response was, quote, I don't know how to explain this, but I come from a different background than you, ma'am. I just felt like the police was against me at that point, end quote. Technicians for the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, or KBI, also testified at the trial. They said that forensic testing found Wilson's DNA on her chest where Wilson admitted to kissing her, but there was no DNA or seminal fluid on her clothing or on the vaginal swab that was taken at the hospital the next day. However, they mentioned that this does not necessarily mean that sexual intercourse did not occur. Also, the jury was reminded of the photos that the nurse took of the victim's thighs where she had bruising. This, the prosecution argued, showed that the bruising was consistent with Wilson holding her legs down because the bruises were the approximate shape and size of a person's thumbs. The next day, on Thursday, January 10th, 2019, both the defense and prosecution rested their cases after delivering their closing arguments. The prosecution reminded the jury of how the girl's cousin corroborated her version of events surrounding the assault, and that both her mom and the forensic psychologist both testified about the victim's emotional devastation afterward. In the defense's closing, Wilson's attorney, Forrest Lowry, reminded the jury that there was no physical evidence of intercourse, and contrary to her testimony of stumbling from intoxication, surveillance cameras showed the girl was walking just fine. Lowry also disputed that she was too drunk to consent or that she didn't consent at all. But I'm going to be honest, some of the stuff Wilson's attorney said in his closing arguments were minimally convincing at best. For example, he told the jury, quote, There was no signed statement. By everything she did, according to Albert, she indicated that sex was what she wanted, end quote. He also said that jurors could only speculate on why the young woman, who is white while Wilson is black, claimed she was raped. They could only speculate what actually triggered her PTSD diagnosis. They didn't know for sure. Lowry also said, quote, She's a young girl going to a private Catholic all-girls school. She may have thought that she had gone too far with a strange man. I don't know if race has anything to do with it. It may have. You don't know, and you will probably never know. End quote. On this third day of the trial, after closing arguments, the jury deliberated for about six hours before coming back with a verdict. 
they found Wilson guilty on one count of rape by using force or fear regarding the incident at his home, but they hung on the second count of rape regarding the incident on the dance floor. But I do want to point out that other than taking the stand the first day of the trial, the victim or Jane Doe, which is probably how I will refer to her from here on out, because I'm about to tell you a lot more information about her (laughs) and I don't want to keep saying the victim. So the victim or Jane Doe never showed up to watch or participate in any other court proceedings. She didn't even attend on the last day of the trial to hear the final verdict. After the trial concluded, there was a bit of a gap before Wilson was actually sentenced. The Lawrence Journal World reported that in February 2019, his sentence was pushed back because the pre-sentencing investigation was not yet complete, which is a process that details the defendant's criminal history if there is any. Well, Wilson did not have any criminal history at all, but here's an interesting tidbit of information. Apparently, his sentencing was also pushed back a bit because Lowry, Wilson's court-appointed defense attorney, actually requested a whole new trial. Why, you ask? Well, listen to this. A juror had come forward and sent a lengthy email to three people. She sent it to Lowry, she sent it to the prosecuting attorney, and she sent it to the judge. And that email basically said that she was having regrets. She said she believed she voted the wrong way and believed Wilson was not guilty. However, the judge denied the request for a new trial, citing that jury regret is not a valid reason under state law to order a new trial. So, three months later, in April 2019, the Lawrence Journal World reported Wilson was finally sentenced to 147 months, or just over 12 years in prison. Apparently, this is the lowest end of what's called for under Kansas sentencing guidelines for rape. At the sentencing hearing, more than two dozen friends and relatives of Wilson attended on his behalf. They testified to his good character, describing him as a selfless young man with good work ethic and big goals for his life. It was actually at the sentencing hearing that we found out more about Wilson as a person. He had attended Wichita Southeast High School and played football there. Then he went on to Coffeyville Community College and earned an associate's degree before transferring to the University of Kansas. He had his heart set on being a sports journalist, and he was realizing his dream of graduating from KU with a bachelor's degree. Wilson also spoke briefly to the judge at his sentencing. He told her he wasn't a bad person and asked her to do anything she could to help him with a lighter sentence. He told her, quote, I'm sorry for the whole situation, end quote. Doe, Jane Doe, and her supporters did not attend the sentencing, but her attorney spoke on her behalf. She said that Doe had just as many people supporting her outside the courtroom, and her attorney said the incident robbed the victim of the person she would go on to become. Even though Wilson's attorney asked for probation or a shorter sentence in light of him having no prior criminal history, the judge ultimately denied the request. In handing down her sentence, Judge Picorni told Wilson, quote, You and your family may not agree with the verdict, but the verdict came back as guilty. This offense is rape. End quote. Have you ever wondered what you would get if HGTV and Investigation Discovery had a baby? Well, the long and short of it is, you would get us. Hi, I'm Christina. And I'm Kristen. And each week on The Real Crime Podcast, we bring you a taste of the sinister side of real estate. 
Tune in each Wednesday for a new episode wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and be sure to subscribe or follow so you don't miss a grisly tale of how dark homeownership can get. Wilson sentencing, the whole case started gaining tons of media and celebrity attention, among them being socialite and model Kim Kardashian and rapper Meek Mill. This is particularly because not only did Wilson receive over 12 years in prison, but he was also facing lifetime supervision and registering as a sex offender upon his release. According to Vibe.com, many people began comparing it to the rape case against Brock Turner. Heavy.com reported that in June 2016, 22-year-old Brock Turner was sentenced to only six months in prison after he was found guilty of raping an unconscious woman in January of 2015. Turner, a white man, was a student at Stanford University at the time. Apparently, prosecutors recommended he serve six years in prison, while probation officials said he should only face a moderate county jail sentence, whatever that means. But in the end, he only received six months in prison. So quickly after Wilson's sentencing, his family and supporters hit the ground running in an attempt to start the next phase of the legal process, an appeal. According to Heavy.com, they started a GoFundMe account in efforts to help Wilson's family pay for his appeal. The account page noted that the retention fee for an appellate lawyer is between $15,000 and $20,000, and the account ended up raising a total of $2,520 out of a $50,000 goal before it was actually deleted by the crowdfunding organization itself. GoFundMe said the campaign violated its policies for, quote, being in support of or for the legal defense of alleged crimes associated with hate, violence, harassment, bullying, discrimination, terrorism, or intolerance of any kind, end quote. Though the GoFundMe page was shut down, it didn't deter Wilson's supporters. They started a change.org petition regarding Wilson's case, which received over 13,000 signatures, and they developed a website dedicated to his case, which is freealbertwilson.com. And I'll come back to this website and explain it a little more in detail in a bit, so put a pin in that for now. With all this attention, Wilson's case also caught the eye of the Innocence Project, which provided him with two new appellate attorneys who took on his case, Michael Whalen and Josh Dubin. If you aren't familiar with the Innocence Project, according to the official website, innocenceproject.org, it is a nonprofit organization founded in 1992 at Cardozo School of Law that exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. So, back to the freealbertwilson.com website. According to the site, which is adorned with tons of happy life photos of Wilson with his family and friends, Wilson is a son, a brother, and an uncle. And prior to his conviction, he was passionate about making an impact in the world and attending college. Also, the website expands on Wilson's dream of becoming a sports journalist, saying, quote, It was a dream fueled by hope to use the power of stories to reshape the narrative of the black identity in America through empathetic and authentic stories of the people that came from communities like his. A dream that is now at risk of being taken away for something he did not do, end quote. 
The website also documents that on May 14, 2019, Wilson appealed his case to the Kansas Court of Appeals. His attorneys filed a motion for a Van Cleave hearing, which is used when it becomes apparent that a defendant's trial counsel was ineffective. Basically, this is a special procedure that speeds up the usual appeal process and allows a district court to decide whether ineffective assistance in fact occurred or not. According to the Lawrence Times, a Van Cleave hearing is not the typical way the appellate process works in Kansas, but it is a much quicker process. That basically means, from my understanding, that at the hearing, when that does happen, the defense better have their shit together to prove that the defendant deserves a new trial. And that is exactly what Wilson's attorney did. According to the Free Albert Wilson website, Wilson's original public defender, Forrest Lowry, failed to do four things. One, he failed to file any pretrial motions. Two, he never consulted a DNA expert to explain the lack of physical evidence. Three, Lowry never objected to the testimony of the prosecution's psychologist, John Spiridigliazzi, during the trial. And four, he never introduced exculpatory evidence from Jane Doe's phone. The Van Cleve hearing was held November 2nd and 3rd in 2020, so close to a year ago now. At the hearing, Wilson's attorneys, Waylon and Dubin, said they found evidence that Lowry never used in the original trial. Remember the forensic psychologist that the prosecution called to the stand, Spiridigliazzi? He is the guy who diagnosed Jane Doe with PTSD after the incident. Well, at this new hearing, Spiridigliazzi said that other evidence, which contradicted what Doe had told him prior to his evaluation, would have been good to know prior to his diagnosis and report. At the hearing, the psychologist made it a point to say that many of the facts were missing, such as text messages from Doe's phone that showed she actually discussed with her mother about a Prozac prescription she had. So, as most of you probably know, Prozac is a drug commonly used to treat depression. But the text messages were timestamped from a month prior to the night in question. So, these text messages basically refute Jane Doe's, as well as her mother's and her cousin's claims, on the stand that she began suffering from PTSD symptoms after the alleged incident. Also, the psychologist noted that he had asked to see her prior medical records, but she never provided those to him. If she would have, he would have discovered that Doe had experience with antidepressant prescriptions, such as Prozac, and she had some counseling sessions in middle school as well. To be clear, it's not bad that, you know, she did deal with mental health concerns previously. It's the fact that she did not disclose that information, which could have somehow messed with the diagnosis. And so she was dishonest about it. Furthermore, according to the Lawrence Journal World, Doe told the psychologist that she couldn't stand being out in crowds anymore. But they discovered 17 photos in her phone that documented her out with friends at dances in the weeks and months following the September 10th and 11th incident. Also, the psychologist, Spiridigliazzi, had never actually seen surveillance videos from the night in question. He had only ever seen still images captured from the videos. After he watched the videos, he testified at the hearing that Jane Doe did not appear to be as intoxicated as she originally claimed to him. Also, at the Van Cleve hearing, Wilson's attorney said that they discovered other texts on Doe's phone as well. 
In those texts, she told someone she was drunk in a video she had posted to social media. And she told another friend in August 2016, so prior to the incident in question, that she had some whiskey if the friend wanted to pregame. However, she told the psychologist when he evaluated her that she had only ever had one beer. That's it, just one beer. So she said she had never drank alcohol in excess like she did the night in question. Her texts, though, prove otherwise. Furthermore, at the hearing, Dubin said other text messages on Doe's phone suggested she had a more extensive sexual history than what she had told the psychologist. He did enter the texts into evidence for Judge Picorni to review, but they were not actually shown or disclosed at the hearing. But here's the thing. All of this evidence was not new. Lowry, Wilson's original attorney, had access to all of it the whole time in the original case files. He just chose not to use it to cross-examine Doe or Spiridigliazzi. After the Van Cleve hearing in November 2020, both the prosecutor and defense had submitted their final arguments for the judge to consider a new trial. While the defense, Wilson's attorneys Waylon and Dubin, submitted oral arguments, the assistant DA at the time, Kate Duncan Butler, submitted a written argument. She wrote that the admission of text messages about Doe's personal life months before the incident, quote, dramatically increases the likelihood of blaming and shaming the victim. It is also unclear how those messages are relevant now, except perhaps to paint Doe as dishonest, end quote. The assistant DA also addressed the text the defense brought up about Doe going out with her friends and posting pictures of her social life. The assistant DA wrote, quote, Just because Doe posed and smiled with her friends does not mean she exaggerated or fabricated her symptoms. Doe explained this general concept in her testimony, saying, I think a lot of people post pictures where they look happy on social media when they're not happy in reality, end quote. For three months, all both parties could do was wait wait for Judge Picorni to review the evidence and determine whether or not she would grant Wilson a new trial. Finally, the decision came on March 16, 2021. According to the Lawrence Times, the judge ruled for a new trial via Zoom. Wilson, now 25, burst into tears when she announced her ruling. I actually posted a screenshot of that Zoom call to my Instagram, at Campus Crime Podcast, if you want to check it out. It's honestly a pretty emotional picture for various reasons. So I know what you're thinking. How exactly did the judge arrive at this decision? Well, before I proceed and tell you the remaining details and reasoning the judge provided on March 16th, I want to paint a picture that might be a little more clear of the whole night in question. So I'm going to take you through the timeline that is documented on the free Albert Wilson website. On the website, it says, 15 minutes. What happened? On September 10th, 2016, Albert went to a popular college bar near the University of Kansas called the Jayhawk Cafe, better known as the Hawk. The bar was very crowded that evening as it was the university's family day weekend. While standing in line at the bar, Albert met a young woman, the accuser, and the two struck up a conversation. They danced together and eventually started kissing. When Albert invited the young woman back to his apartment, the two left the bar and walked together hand in hand. When they arrived at Albert's apartment, they laid on his bed and kissed. No clothes were removed and they did not have sex. After receiving a text message and a call from his friend, Albert decided to return to the bar. Albert and the young woman then walked back to the Hawk, where he reunited with his friend and the young woman found her cousin. The two were alone in Albert's apartment for approximately five minutes. 
So the whole timeline of all of this literally was 15 minutes, five minutes walking to the bar, five minutes in his room, five minutes walking back. So let me go through the timeline more specifically. At 10.56 p.m., Albert and his friend entered the Hawk. At 11.08 p.m., the accuser arrived at the bar with her cousin. At 11.45 p.m., so over 30 minutes later, so she was in the bar for 30 minutes before she met Albert, Albert and the accuser stood in line to enter the dance area where they started talking. At 11.56 p.m., the accuser led Albert by the hand onto the dance floor where they kissed. At 12.04 a.m., Albert invited the accuser back to his home and she agreed. At 12.06 a.m., Albert and the accuser start to make their excerpt from the bar. This is where our 15-minute window starts. At 12.09 a.m., Albert and the accuser left the bar and walked hand-in-hand down 14th Street. At 12.12 a.m., the accuser stumbled, jumped on Albert, and started kissing him. At 12.14 a.m., two minutes later, the two arrived at Albert's apartment where they kissed on his bed. At 12.17 a.m., Albert called his friend who was still at the Hawk. At 12.19 a.m., Albert received a text message from his friend. At 12.21, Albert received a call from his friend. So a missed text message, a missed call. At 12.25, Albert and the accuser arrived back at the bar. So from 12.17 to 12.19, that's only two minutes. That's whenever he started receiving texts from his friend and he tried calling him back. And then he received a missed call from his friend. All that. It would happen within like four minutes. Okay, so at 12.25 a.m., Albert and the accuser arrived back at the bar. At 12.31 a.m., Albert called his friend back, he reunited with his friend, and the young woman reunited with her cousin. So all of that, they left the bar officially at 12.09 a.m. She stumbled at 12.12. They arrived at his apartment at 12.14. At some time between 12.17 and 12.21, that's whenever all the the text messages and calls were happening, and then they finally walked back to the bar. Five minutes inside his home, a five-minute walk there, a five-minute walk back. Fifteen total minutes. So, now that you have a clearer picture, let's get back to the Zoom meeting where Judge Picorni granted Wilson a new trial. First, she said, the forensic psychologist for the prosecution, John Spiridigliazzi, was acting as the state's lie detector, something that was beyond the scope of his job description. And she said he had testified far beyond his expertise. The judge said his testimony bolstered Doe's credibility for the jury, especially when Lowry had no objections during the psychologist's whole testimony in the courtroom. Picorni also made it a point to say, quote, this was and is a he said, she said case, end quote. Picorni further noted, quote, the court's confidence in the jury's verdict is undermined by Mr. Lowry's failure to review text messages. It is my firm belief that if a jury knew of the information contained in the 2,000 text messages taken from the victim's phone, there is a substantial likelihood the outcome of this case would have been different, end quote. A few days later, on March 23rd, 2021, as everyone was awaiting the judge to set a new trial date for Wilson, his pre-trial release conditions were reinstated. 
This meant that Wilson was released on another $75,000 bond and ankle monitoring. However, as part of those conditions, KWCH 12 in Wichita reported that Wilson was not allowed to post on social media or talk to the media until after the case is resolved. He also cannot release the victim's name. Upon his release in March of this year, and before the new trial date was set, the Lawrence Journal World reported that a new DA, Suzanne Valdez, said her office planned to work toward resolving the case without a second trial. Valdez said, quote, We have promised Mr. Wilson's counsel that we will work with them. We will attempt to resolve this short of trial so that we can hopefully get justice for both the defendant and the survivor. End quote. On August 19, 2021, the Lawrence Journal World reported that a second trial date was officially set. It is scheduled to begin on February 28, 2022. But I have to be honest and tell you that it is unclear exactly where the case is at this very moment. That's because in August of this year, DA Valdez offered Wilson a plea deal to avoid a trial. As we know, a plea deal usually requires the defendant to enter a plea of guilty or no contest to fewer or lesser charges. And it usually includes an agreed-upon sentence for the judge to consider. But the details of the plea deal were not and have not been released. Apparently, Wilson and his attorneys had until September 1st of this year to accept the deal. At the time it was offered, in August, Dubin said he was confident that a resolution would be agreed to before the September 1st deadline. But... Uh, that deadline has since come and gone and we haven't heard anything. So I suppose I'm leaving y'all on a cliffhanger because I have no idea if they accepted the plea or if we will see a trial starting in just a few months in February of next year. I know the suspense is killing me too. So I reached out. I sent an email to the address listed on freealbertwilson.com and I asked for an update. I even asked to interview Wilson But, of course, (laughs) I haven't heard anything back, and that has been over a week ago. I'm assuming that the whole don't talk to the media until the case is resolved situation applies to my little old podcast, too. But I decided it was worth a shot. So, as soon as I find out something, anything, any type of updated information on whether or not he accepted the plea or if he's going through with a new trial... I will let y'all know. So be sure to monitor my social media on Instagram at Campus Crime Podcast and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook for all the latest updates on this case. (sighs) Okay, y'all, that brings us to the end of Chronicle 17. And I truly hope you enjoyed today's episode. But I'm not going to quit asking for those reviews on Apple Podcasts because I'm so close to my goal of 50 or more by the end of the year. So come on, y'all. We're so close. We can do it. (laughs) Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.